Hello, and thank you for tuning in for another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Kevin O'Connell, an Academy Award winning sound mixer whose work includes Top Gun, Transformers, the original Sam Raimi Spider Man trilogy, and more recently, even Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. In our conversation, we talk about a wide range of topics, from his first Oscar nomination at age 26, to memories working with directors Tony Scott and Michael Bay, and what it meant to finally, after 20 repeat nominations, to win his first Oscar in March of 2017 for his work on Hacksaw Ridge. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. So, Kevin, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, I know you've been asked this a million times, but in order for people to understand, just to start things off, if you had to describe to your grandmother the difference between sound editing and sound mixing, how would you explain it? And how would you define the job of a re-recording mixer? Well, golly, that's a big question to start off with, but uh, let me see if I can do it some justice. Sound editors are the ones who provide us with the material of which we mix. So in other words, if you think about a movie like Jurassic Park or Transformers, the sound editors and sound designers are the guys who create the sound of the dinosaurs and they create the sounds of the Transformers. And then they bring them to us and we mix them and blend them into the fabric of the film. We are, uh, sound mixing is where we take the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects to try to blend it into one cohesive narrative, you know, based on whatever the film requires. You know, a simple way of explaining it is obviously when the two main characters kiss, we raise the music, and when they decide to talk, we lower it so that you can hear them talk. In an action film, if you take a movie like Top Gun, for example, Top Gun starts off with a bunch of uh, aircrafts on an aircraft carrier winding up and maneuvering around the ship. And so that was a delicate blend of music and sound effects, literally sound effects trading off from music back and forth like in, you know, in, in a rhythm. And then the second, you know, there was the downbeat of the music and the jets took off. Then it was a delicate dance to uh, when we hear Kenny Loggins singing Highway to the Danger Zone and then the sound of the F-14s as they fly by. And that that's a very, uh, you know, uh, like I said, delicate dance that we do uh, uh, as mixers working in tandem with the director who uh, obviously gives us the uh, his idea of, of the way he wants the movie to sound. So the short story is, is the sound editors provide us with the material, and then once we have the material, then we take the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects, and we blend them together. And we have every single sound that's in a movie, from every character's dialogue, to every character's footsteps, to the movement of their shirts, to the sirens, the guns, the explosions, and then every instrument, the orchestra, the percussion, the choir. We have every single element separated, and then we blend them together to create the narrative for the film. If I'm correct, you started out getting into sound uh, at a very young age and through your mother, right? My goal uh, was to be an LA County firefighter, which I, I became one when I was 18 years old. And I was dispatched to Camp 8 up in uh, Malibu where I uh, fought brush fires for a season. And uh, I still lived at home. And my mother at the time worked at 20th Century Fox in the sound department. And so I would uh, come home from brush fires and I was literally beaten in tattered to shreds. And my mother said, you know, I, I, I really don't like this line of work for you. I wish you'd come down and look at the studio and see what we do and see if there's any interest in that. So I went down and uh, checked it out. And I thought it looked kind of cool, although it was all indoors and I was used to being outdoors. 
And then I was uh, dispatched to a fire up uh, near Castaic Lake that I was on for three days. And when I came back from that three days, I was beaten to shreds like these guys get because it's a very hard job. And then I said to my mom, well, why don't I go down and check that job out one more time? And then I got the call uh, that there's a position available. And so I I took it. And that was in uh, January of 1978. And I was very, very fortunate to end up working at a place called the Warner Hollywood Studios. At the time, it was called Samuel Goldwyn, but it later became Warner Hollywood. And I got, I got uh, to work with a very great group of people. And, and early in my career, I got to work on movies like The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Grease and Animal House. So, I mean, just very, very fortunate to fall into it at that time uh, with that group of people. Those exact movies were the ones I was going to mention because you... As you said, you started as a junior sound technician. So I want to ask you, you know, looking back at the experience and the knowledge you have about sound now, what were some of the very first concepts and tricks you were grasping about the job by working on the on those early projects? Well, my, my position on those projects was as a uh, like a mixed technician. I wasn't a re-recording mixer at that time. I was the guy who worked in the machine room facilitating the mixers by hanging up the tracks on the machine so that they could mix them on those movies. It wasn't until 1981 or 1982 that I began actually mixing. And when I began actually mixing, I mixed sound effects. And at that point, all I was trying to do was keep my head above water because it was a much different time, a much different era. Mixing is very expensive. The uh, people were much less politically correct in that in those days than they are now. And the guys, you know, you're you're mixing on a console with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of sound effects and music and dialogue, and you're mixing real time. There is no automation. There is no computer. There's nothing but you. The very first movie I ever mixed was a movie called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is a, 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 not a complicated movie, but the very opening scene was a very complicated scene where there's a car skidding down a mountain in the mud while it's thunder and lightning and raining. And, you know, I only had about 15 or 16 tracks in front of me and I said to the mixer sitting next to me, Bill Varney, who was a great mixer. He had just won Oscars for Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and, and uh, Empire Strikes Back. And I said, Bill, what do I do? Because there was no formal training for a mixer back then. I Literally on the Friday before that Monday, I was working in the machine room hanging tracks. And that Monday, I came in wearing nicer clothes and sat down and became a mixer. And I said, what do I do? And he said, well, just put all the faders on like minus 10, which I did. And uh, that film was directed by a guy named Carl Reiner. It was produced by Steve Martin. And the picture editor was a guy named Bud Mullen, who had previously picture edited I Love Lucy. That, you know, he was an older guy. And so we started playing the film. And uh, the second uh, Bill Varney hit go, all you heard was thunder, lightning, rain in cars and skidding at, at like plus 100 dB. And the, and the, and the, the theater, the, the speaker sounded like it was going to rip out of the screen. And I'm looking at Bill and he's yelling at me and I can't hear him. I look back and I see Carl Reiner covering his ears. Bud Mullen looks like he's having a coronary. And Steve Martin is like got this look of shock on his face. And I look at Bill and he's yelling at me and I can't hear him. And I said, what? And he goes, you're playing everything everything too loud. And I said, should I go to minus 10? And they go, yes. So I pull all the faders down to minus 10 and it got a little better. The thing is, is that when you're mixing a movie, it's going by real time. So you have to have the skids up at 10, but then you got to be down for the thunder and then up for the lightning and then down for the skids. It's a, it's a, it's a sweaty palm type existence, you know? And somehow I made it through that movie, but that was my first mixing experience. What I learned from that was 
What we do in sound now is we use our talents to best tell the story. It's about telling the story. It's not about how loud the jets are, how loud the music is, or how loud the dialogue is. It's how you blend them together into like this one seamless narrative that becomes the voice of the film. And that's what I've learned now. It's not about the individual pieces. It's how they work together. And your first Oscar nomination, by the way, came for uh, Terms of Endearment in 83, which is three years later. And you're, you know, if my calculations are correct, only 26. So I was going to ask you, how did it feel to be recognized with a nomination at such a young age? And, and because you were so young, did it impact your approach to the work on a creative level? To be honest with you, at that time, it was just like... Um, I had no idea what that even meant being nominated for an Oscar. It was such a it was such a thrill and a privilege and, a, and an honor. Um, and I actually did that show with James L. Brooks, who was the director writer of that film, Terms of Endearment. Strangely enough, last week I just did another film with James L. Brooks. Thirty five years after we did our first wow. collaboration together, um, and and like I said, I'll, I'll, back in those days, all I. Every time I saw a filmmaker over in the corner of the room talking to somebody and kind of whispering, I thought they were talking about me being too young because my second film uh, was uh, After Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid was Poltergeist. And Steven Spielberg produced it and basically directed it because he, uh, even though Toby Hooper directed it, Steven was the guy sitting next to me on the stage while we were mixing. And I was at, I was just 23 or 24 years old at that point. And I remember him leaning over to me to say, hey, Kevin, on the next uh, scene, could, do you mind? And then his voice just went off into reverb and I didn't hear a word he was saying. And I'm like, oh, my God, Steven Spielberg's talking to me and I've got to remember what he's saying. But, oh, my God, he, he's talking to me. And all of a sudden he, he'd say, OK, thank you. And I look at Bill Varney. I go, what did he want me to do? He goes, raise the keys, you know, because I was so like flustered that he was even just talking to me. I wanted to ask you about uh, your day to day process when you only have a limited time to sound mix a two hour movie. How do you operate both on a micro and in a macro scale to make sure that every reel of the picture is getting enough attention and time? You know, do you take a week and go through the entire movie doing one pass at a time or do you dedicate set amounts of time to work on each sequence? It's about managing expectations, right? So sometimes when we don't have a lot of time to work on a film, you can't get in there and do all the little odds and ends you'd like to do across the T's and dot the I's. You got to do work in broad strokes. Am I hearing the dialogue? Is it clear? Is the music taking over when it's supposed to? Are the effects, you know, supplementing the mix the way they're supposed to? That's just like if you have just a few days to get a mix together, because sometimes we do what's called a temp mix, um, because we do, um, we when the film's not complete, we do temp mixes for audience previews, where they'll take it out to a theater and run it for an audience. And sometimes we only have like four or five days to get those together. And then what we do is, it's about, like I said, about managing expectations. We're not going to be able to have the dialogue be as crisp and clear and well EQ'd as you do in a final mix. But as long as you're hearing all the words, that's what's important in broad stroke terms, right? It isn't until you get a full on schedule. Like if, you, if you're working on a Spider-Man movie, you have, you know, maybe 10 weeks to get the movie together and you spend the first two or three just pre-mixing the dialogue, blending all the different angles together, blending all the ADR into the production dialogue, blending all the group ADR into the ADR and into the production. And that takes about two or three weeks. And then you go into the final mix where you sit with the music and the sound effects and the director and the producers and you create what's called the final mix. And then you, then you take your time, whatever time that you have to do it. And we have been lucky enough to go to film school and we were always taught that sound is 
50% of the movie experience picture being the other half. And you kind of touched on it a moment ago, talking about the fact that it was, you know, it was about how all the pieces fit together. Uh, but why do you think sound operates on a far more subconscious level than audiences may understand? And, and how do you personally try to engage an audience through sound in an emotional way? I think that's because you can't see the sound. I think that when people see a transformer or they see the Titanic breaking in half or they see a dinosaur, they think that somebody just went to the library of dinosaurs, transformers or, or Titanic ships breaking in half and pulled out that sound. They don't realize the hours and weeks and months that go into trying to make you. In other words, the visual is what you're seeing and, and the visual effects have gotten so good that the sound is what sells that image to you. It sells the dinosaur. You know, the Jurassic Park dinosaurs would look, would seem much more cartoonish if it wasn't for the sounds when they roar, right? Same with Titanic breaking in half. You know, you have to really have mastered that sound, which those guys did very well. And I think that if there was any reason why sound is not appreciated, it's because you can't see it. You can only hear it. But certainly the dinosaurs, the Transformers, and the uh, Titanics breaking in half wouldn't have half the impact that they have on audiences without the sound. Yeah. Which is the 50% that you're talking about. In preparation for this, uh, as I told you, I was doing a lot of research and uh, you talked with Scott Feinberg about, you know, extensively about your relationship with Tony Scott, who unfortunately passed away in the August of 2012. And you got to work with him on a, a lot, a lot of films, including, um, you know, Top Gun and True Romance and Days of Thunder, to name a few. And you described him as perhaps one of the most influential directors in your career, given his understanding, trying to bring as much emotion and story out of every single cut. So what do you feel was his understanding of sound and what was your creative process trying to get there together? Right. So Tony is a true artist by nature. That's what his, you know, he's, he's a filmmaker, but at the end of the day, he was a true artist. And Tony didn't understand sound like in terms of, you know, nanowebers, gigawatts, decibels or whatever. He only understood the emotional impact sound had on what he was doing or trying to create. What Tony taught me was that when I look at a scene, I literally look at every single picture cut and say, what's the most important thing we need to hear in this scene we've just cut to? If it's a car racing on a bridge, is it, is it the sound of the engine? Is it the sound of the tires on top of the uh, bridge, you know, making a rattling sound? Is it the percussion in the music going da 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 uh, What is it that is the most important thing that's going to drive that emotion in that scene? And when I work on a movie with Tony, we would literally take apart the entire musical score to figure out what's going to drive that scene. What are we looking for? Are we looking for tension? Are we looking for emotion? Are we looking for duress? What are we looking for? And then we'd find whatever the instruments were that were creating that and we'd accentuate those on the cut. And maybe that's only for three or four seconds that we would do that. And then we'd, then we'd shift our focus now to the sound of the engine and the truck that's driving it. Tony taught me literally about the art of filmmaking, the fact that what we do really helps sell the narrative of what he's trying to create on screen. And, and he's never settled for anything. If a scene wasn't exactly what it was, we'd work on it until we were completely beaten down, tired of it. And then maybe we'd press on. Then he'd come in back in the next day and say, Kev, let's take a look at that scene again. And then we'd jump right back into it again and we'd take it apart again. He was a true artist in every sense of the word. And one of the finest people I've ever met in my life. No one ever in, I've never in my 30 year 
40-year career, whatever it is, I've never heard anybody have a crossword to say about Tony Scott. As a matter of fact, when he died, it was very, very hard on me. It was like a family member died. Even the restaurant that we used to go to together once in a while, when I went back there, this was several weeks after his death, even the parking attendant came over and hugged me and started crying because he, it, that's the effect Tony had on everybody. It wasn't just us. It was everybody in his life. He was, he was truly one of the best ever. Ever. And I was so fortunate to have done Top Gun with him. I think I was 26 when I did Top Gun, which was a big movie for a 26-year-old. Uh, and Tony was just, you know, such a such a great guy to work with. Yeah, I miss him dearly. He's he was the best. Did a lot of shows with him, like 12 or 13 or something. Through the work that you guys did together, I hope and think that you know is probably the one way even people who didn't personally know him um, can live on his memory by enjoying the movies through generations again and again. You also worked with folks like Michael Bay and, and Sam Raimi and William Friedkin. I'm singling these three gentlemen out specifically, but I, I wanted to spend a moment to talk about your relationship with film directors at, at large in, in the post-production phase. Uh, how soon do you welcome a director into the mixing stage? And do some love being more involved you know, with sound than others? I mean, do, do you like to be left alone with your team for the early beginning? Or can it be fun to have a director uh, that is very involved and passionate about what he or she wants? Right. Well, you know, listen, the, the all directors run the gamut of all of that. You know, there there's the guys like Tony Scott that come in and sit down next to you. He sits right next to me in the chair and we go over every inch of the film, every single inch back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times till we get it the way he wants it to be. Then there's directors that say, what time do you want me on the stage today? And we say, oh, well, we'll, we'll be working all morning. Why don't you come in at four o'clock? Then they come in at four o'clock and we run the, run the reel for them, about a 10-minute sequence. And then they give us notes on what they think. And then there's everything in between. People that want to sit behind us while we're doing it, make comments, whatever. Generally, what happens is we get involved with the director in the temp mixes, which are, well, like I told you earlier, those, that's when we're getting ready to do a preview. And we start to learn his sensibilities and what, how he wants to shape the movie. Because, you know, a, a movie soundtrack is like anything. It's like uh, building a house. You can have all of the stones and blocks and bricks and mortars and all those pieces. But how you put them together and how you shape them is what's important. And that's what we do, you know, uh, hearkening back to what you said about sound editors. They bring us the bricks, the rocks, the mortar and all those pieces. And then we sort of put it together with them and the filmmakers together. And every filmmaker is different. You know, Billy Friedkin uh, is certainly a, 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 a character. Michael Bay is a, is a big character. And, uh, and Sam Raimi is a big character. And what I found is knowing how to deal with the different personalities. You know, Michael Bay has certain, certain expectations. Billy Friedkin comes in with his and Sam Raimi comes in with his. Three completely different personalities. I believe to do what, to what I do and be successful, you have to know how to navigate those personalities. You can't treat all three of them the same. Yeah. You have to be different because they're, they're so different. And they are different people, and I'm sure they have different minds creatively. We spoke to John Schwartzman, who's a Michael Bay cinematographer from at least in the very beginning, um, and we asked him to share if he had any Michael Bay stories. I mean, when you guys work together, there's so much going on in terms of layers, visually and sound-wise. Is it an approach where more is more, or what's his approach talking to you? What's Michael Bay? Like? Yeah, why not? Uh, you know, Michael Bay is, uh, I haven't worked with Michael since I did the first Transformer movie, did the first seven of his movies. Michael has an interesting approach. He wants things to be cool. 
And when I say that, uh, it's because when he comes in, he goes, no, 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 guys, this has got to be much cooler than that. And we get what he's saying. We, we need to make it better, right? You know, cool is a pretty broad term, but we get what he means, you know? One of my um, favorite stories about Michael Bay was we were working on a movie, and I think it was Pearl Harbor. I'm fairly certain it was. And there was a scene where there were some characters coming up on an aircraft carrier elevator. And he leaned over to me, and I'm going to say a few F-bombs here, and you guys can take it out if you want. But he leans over to me, and he goes, he goes, you guys got to raise that elevator. And we go, okay. He goes, have you ever been on a fucking aircraft carrier? And I said, no. He goes, well, they're pretty fucking loud. And we said, okay, Michael, we'll raise the sound of the elevator, right? So we do. And now fast forward, we are at the premiere of Pearl Harbor, which is in Pearl Harbor, on board the USS John Stennis, which is an aircraft carrier. They had the premiere on an aircraft carrier in Pearl Harbor. So me and my partner, Greg, go there, and we get to the dock of the ship. We, they motor us over to the ship, and then there's an elevator, which is the literally the same elevator that was in the movie that we took up to get to the top of the ship. We get on there, and it starts going, and I look at my partner. It makes no noise. And I go, Jesus Christ, now I have been on a fucking aircraft carrier, and they don't make any noise. So when we got up to uh, the deck, we uh, ran over and grabbed Michael Bay, and we kind of busted his balls on that a little bit. Uh, and it's been kind of a joke ever since. There's a shorthand with Michael, and, you know, he lets you know right away when something's not right. And he may not be able to articulate it how he wants it better, but when he says, I just want it cooler, we know what he means. So in the spring of 2017, you finally, after 20 nominations, received your first Oscar win for Hacksaw Ridge. Congratulations again. And while I did reach out to you as early as back then to sit down and share this conversation, I'm glad we didn't because these 12 months may have allowed some perspective, which you didn't have back in March. So I wanted to ask if it meant anything in any way that this, meaning Hacksaw Ridge, was the first movie you were recognized for? And did you let it change your perspective and career in any ways in the months that immediately followed? You know, I don't think anybody's had the perspective of being nominated 20 or 21 times and never won. And it's a perspective I hope nobody ever has to have because while it was fun for a really long time, after a while it became not such a fun thing. And the reason for that is, is because right around the time I was up against, you know, maybe my 15th, 16th, 17th time being nominated, a lot of news organizations wanted to talk to me because it was a newsworthy story. But they would put a spin on it that I didn't care for. And what that was, was that I would do an interview with a uh, journalist and then I would tell my friends and family, sit around the TV at, at Channel 11 tonight at 7 o'clock, they're going to do a thing on me. And then the person who did the interview would come on with a teaser saying, coming up, we're going to have a conversation with Hollywood's biggest loser. And all of a sudden I would hear that and I would look at my family and, and they would look at me like, I thought this was supposed to be fun because it doesn't sound fun when it they doesn't. say that, right? And then one time they put me on the cover of the L.A. Times and I said to them, I'll do the interview if you don't refer to me as a loser because I don't think that that's fair and, and it doesn't make me feel good. And they said, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. And the L.A. Times came out and I looked at the headline. It said, sound advice from a 16-time loser. And it was my photograph. So I became very shy about talking to the press after around the 15th, 16th nomination because even though I had gone on shows like Katie Couric did an interview with me, and when it started to air on Sunday night, they started playing Frank, Frank Sinatra's song, This One Goes to All the Losers. And it was like, I can't escape this. And it was really beginning to affect me. It, and and, and I, I, I brushed it off for the longest time like it didn't matter. But deep down, I knew it did matter because I just didn't, you know, it just doesn't feel good, right? So this year, when I hadn't been nominated for like 10 years since 2007, 
I was very reluctant to do any press at all because I just didn't want my family because now my children are old enough to read these stories themselves. And I didn't want them subjected to that because I was really concerned about it. And then a friend of mine said, you know what, man, you just got to kind of go with it. And then this year, when I started doing the press, nobody took that spin on it, which was like shocking to me because for so many years they did. So I did more press and I talked to some more people uh, and stuff and I, and I felt pretty good going into, into it. But yet I knew we were up against a behemoth. Uh, you know, uh, uh, musicals always do really well in the sound mixing category. And we were up against La La Land. And all the pundits in town were saying that La La Land was going to win. And I believed them because, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I've lost several Oscars to Dreamgirls, to Chicago, to what, Les Miserables, whatever it is, you know. And, and, and those are all great sounding movies and I'm not besmirching them in any way. They're, they were totally great and they totally deserved to win. But that just made me think I wasn't going to win again. So when the uh, family asked me, the boys, my, my two boys, Cooper and Casey, who are at the time 14 and 11, asked if they could go, I had to think it over because I know what it was like to sit in that theater and lose. And it's an emotional, even though every year I brushed it off and kind of, you know, kept my chin up and smiled and, and, and said, oh, it's no big deal. We'll get them next time. It really wasn't a good feeling. And I didn't want them sitting in that theater having that same feeling with me. And I was 100% certain that was going to be the outcome. So when they started reading the nominations for sound editing, which was just before our award, and we lost that award to Arrival, I thought, we have no chance of winning this. And then when we actually won, and they said, and the Oscar goes too, and I didn't hear my name called, I thought we had lost and it was because in the past they said in the Oscar goes to and they said the name of the person who won. This year they said in the Oscar goes to and they named the title of the film. So the second I heard an H sound and not a K sound for my name, I thought we, you know, I just assumed we lost. And then my wife grabbed me. And she goes, oh, my God, you won, you won, won. She started shaking me and I looked up at the monitor and I saw that it was us. And I literally flipped out. If you look at the tape, you'll see I stand up and I'm buttoning my coat. I'm in shock. And I literally got out of the um, aisle and I ran in a full sprint to the stage. And I had had kind of a 30-year sound guy speech ready to talk about how important what we do is to the process and how important sound men are. And, and then when I got up there, I was overcome with the emotion of looking out at something that I had only dreamed about for the last 30 years, that you know, 37 years, which is the first time I was nominated 37 years ago. It, it was like a dream come true, and, it, and I was overcome with emotion. So I literally looked, and I saw Mel Gibson sitting there, and I saw Bill Mechanic, the two guys I worked with on the film, and Andrew Garfield. And I was just overcome with emotion, and all I could think of was to acknowledge my family and the audience and then, and then talk about my mother, who got me my first job. And the reality is, after I got into the sound department, which I didn't want to do, uh, I didn't, I wanted to stay a fireman. I said to my mom, how can I ever thank you? And she was, my mom was this Irish gal who drank a bit from time to time. And she had had a few drinks and I said, how can I ever thank you? And she thought about it for a minute. And she goes, I'll tell you how you can thank me. You work hard. You work really hard. And then someday you go win yourself an Oscar and you can thank me up there on that stage in front of the whole world. Now, keep in mind, I was only 20 at the time. So the idea of ever winning an Oscar was so far in the realm of ever happening. And I looked at her, I said, OK, mom. And I kind of chuckled and that was it. And then sure enough, it actually happened. And so I was I was very fortunate to be able to give her that recognition, even though she wasn't around anymore. But it was great for me to be able to do that, you know, finally. That's such a beautiful speech. And I really hope people take the time to go check it out. I was rewatching it and it made me emotional, you know, not knowing you. And, and you can just really feel what a special moment it was and just how deserved it was. 
Uh, thank you, man. It was, uh, it was, I walked backstage. They have this thing called a thank you cam. Okay. And it's so that you don't bring out a list saying, you know, I'd like to thank my agent, my dry cleaner. I'd like to thank the guy who, you know, puts gas in my guy. You know, it's like, so you don't have a laundry list of people so that you can thank who's important to thank on camera and then go back to the camera and pull out your list and start thanking people. And prior to the show, my son, Casey, who was in fourth grade at the time, all the kids in his class had gotten together and took a regular white piece of paper, photocopied an Oscar on it and wrote, good luck, Mr. O'Connell. And all the kids signed it. So I stuck that in my pocket along with my speech of thanking all the people, you know, there's like about 100 people I needed to thank on that thank you cam. And when I got to the Oscars and I got in front of that thank you cam, I reached in my pocket and all I had was Casey's note from his kid's <laughs> classroom. So what I did is I just pulled it out and said, I, I want to thank all the kids in Casey's Westmark class, you know, uh, fourth grade class in Westmark. And, and, you know, and that was all I really had to say because I didn't have my, uh, my, my speech with all my uh, people I wanted to thank on it. But I also walked around backstage literally saying to the guys I worked with, did that just happen? Did that just happen? Is this, is this real? Because it was so unbelievable. It was an out-of-body experience. And I hope it's going to be the first of many, many. Well, thanks. Um, so I was looking back at credits of your incredible careers in movies like Armageddon and The Mask of Zorro and Wild Wild West, which were a great part of my childhood, personally speaking, at the end of the 90s. And I was going to ask you, how do you feel the past 30 years transitioning from analog to a more digital phase of mixing sound for movies changed things for you? You know, creatively speaking, does it speed up the process or does it allow you to create more immersive work in any way? Listen, the tools have gotten so much better that it allows us so much more flexibility. And, you know, back in the analog days, once you had a scene down, you know, if you had a chase scene, that took us four days to mix. And it was cops chasing a guy, lights, siren, gunshots, explosions, all that stuff. And then the, the producer could come in and say, you know, I think it's great, but can you lower the siren? Well, you have to mix for four days again to, to lower the siren. You have to literally start over. There is no just lower the siren. You have to go start over. And nowadays, we can just go in and lower the siren. So if someone says, hey, can we try it without the siren? It takes a second to show them what that would sound like. And if they like it, fine. If not, we put it back in. It gives you uh, tons more flexibility. The, the tools, Pro Tools, have just gotten so advanced that uh, I believe it gives me much more creative flexibility. And uh, I would say it, it's easier only because, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the old analog days, if someone said, hey, can you try doing this a little differently? And you do it, and they say, man, I don't like that. Can you put it back the way it was? There's never a 100% certain way to say this is how it was because it's all analog. So if I say, well, I'm pretty sure this is where I was at, and I'm fairly certain this was the balance, they may say, nah, it wasn't. It's something's different. Where nowadays, we can literally just go through timestamps backwards and make sure that we got exactly what they heard before. So it is better. I believe to some degree it is easier. But what it also does is it gives us much more creative freedom to try so many more things because we can just undo if we want to undo it, you know? Yeah. I want to start wrapping things up by asking you about one of your latest projects upon Eric's recommendation. This is last summer's Spider-Man Homecoming. And the reason I'm bringing up this movie specifically is because I find it interesting. Very few have the chance, I think, to revisit a character. You got to mix the original Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3 with Raimi over, you know, the first one was over 15 years ago. How do you reinterpret, you know, this web-slinging character in a way that you guys haven't already? And uh, uh, what were some of the most fun and creative challenges on a film like that? Well, every film 
is different. So I never, ever go into a film saying, well, this is what I did on the last one, so it should work for this one. That's just something I've never done. I believe every film is different. You know, whenever you do sequels, because we did Rambo 1, 2, and 3, and and Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3, and all sorts of sequels, whenever you do sequels, I always try to figure out ways to do it more clever and better than the one before. Spider-Man Homecomings is a completely different type of approach to that Spider-Man character than it was in the Sam Raimi film. So it had to be different. And that was my first opportunity to work with the Marvel folks because the Marvel folks really helped. uh, They steered the ship on Spider-Man Homecoming. And there's a reason why those guys are so successful. It's because the way Victoria Alonso, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and Kevin Feige, who kind of run that organization, they just have a so non-egotistical way of working where I'll, I'll be sitting with those two and three other producers at the console while we're working on the film. And everyone's just trying to make the film better. No one's trying to be the person in charge or say, I know what's better, or I think this is the way we do it. It was such a collaborative effort. And it was easy for me to see why they're so successful in everything that they do because of their philosophy. And so I try to use that same philosophy every time I work on a movie. I think about the sensibilities. What's this movie? How is this different from the other one? And and to me, I actually, what I do is I wipe the slate clean and I never would think to say, this is the way the web sounded in the previous movie, or this is what we did on one or two. It's just not how you go, uh, how I believe is the right way to go into it. Every filmmaker cares about their film. They don't really care about what you did on another film. You know what I mean? So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is every film is different, so you just have to approach it as if it's its own unique object. I understand. Yeah, it's about giving, you know, even through sound, especially through sound, a new identity to the to the character. Um, we, uh, I'll just tell you a quick anecdote. We yeah. were, I was working on Rambo, and Sylvester Stallone would come in, and he would uh, sit with us while we were mixing. And I said to the guys, and this is when, back when I was mixing sound effects, I said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a joke. As Rambo came in, and a guy was shooting at him with a gun, and the gun went pop, 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 pop. Rambo came up, and he knocked him over the head. He knocked him out, and then Rambo picked up the gun, and then I took every gun, put it together, and put this giant subwoofer sound on it. And then when Rambo fired the gun, it sounded like a cannon going off, boom, 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 boom. And and when Sylvester Stallone heard it, he goes, that's the best thing I've ever heard. He goes, every time I have a weapon or an object, it's got to sound like that. So even if Rambo came in and picked up a club that somebody had just clubbed with when he had it, it was three times as heavy and three times as hard. That's fantastic. Just I'm going to go back and listen to an- these Anecdotal things. stuff. Yeah. yeah, but anecdotes are a lot of fun. So let me ask you, Kevin, you turned 60 last November, um, and yet you dedicate your time mixing sometimes up to seven different projects in the same year, which amazes me. And you have over 220 film credits to your name on movies as large as National Treasure or as foreign, like the Russian film Harkar Henry, which was made for like $2 million when they shot it. Uh, how do you select the projects you're involved in and what keeps you working so hard? Okay, well, golly, I I like to stay on a schedule. I like to keep myself busy. I get up at five o'clock in the morning every day and I, I work out or I run or I do something. You know, the kids keep me busy. I like all sorts of projects and I love what I do. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, we have a $150 million film, we'd like to pay you a ton of money to sit and mix it for two months. I say, that sounds like a great plan. Let's do it. And if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I have a $2 million movie and I have no money, but uh, listen, just last week this happened to me. James L. Brooks, who I did Terms of Endearment and so many movies for broadcast news in the past, came to me with a project and said, you know, the, the whole cost of the movie is under $2 million, which is what the sound budget was for Spider-Man, right? 
and they they had two million for their whole movie and he said i can't pay you very much money if at all but i'd love for you to do it and my immediate answer was yes of course i'll do it so i went and spent the last nine days working with him on a movie that i made virtually no money on just because i love what i do and i love and you know and i love working with the people that i've worked with in the past and will that come back to me someday maybe probably could it couldn't it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day i love what i do and whether a movie has a 150 million dollar budget or a 1.5 million dollar budget it doesn't matter I, as long as as long as i get to work with good people that's the main thing it's in the past and when i say past i'm talking like 20 years ago i wanted to be working on armageddon godzilla big crazy movies nowadays it's more about the people i work with than the projects i work on Kevin, you've been very generous with your time and we cannot wait to see what you do next. Thanks, thank guys. You again. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Kevin for welcoming us into a mixing stage at Sony Picture Studios to record this episode and for giving us a look into his creative process. Also, a special thanks to the incredible work of our podcast sound engineer, Eric Boss, who works week and week again to ensure top sound quality for all episodes. Thanks again. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes with new guests. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>